<laughs> wow. Um, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Grace upon grace upon grace for you and I. Isn't it great to be a child of, of the heavenly king? But a heavenly king that is so kind, so benevolent, so full of compassion, ready, eager to rescue it. What a, what a wonderful and a great God. When we've exhausted our resources, our, the hoard of everything that we think will sustain us, and we find out it doesn't, he is there to give and give and give. Let's pray. Father, I am moved by the music, I, the truth that we've been singing. Jesus Christ will hold us fast. The majestic King enthroned in heaven cares about us. He thinks about us. He knows our name. He knows that which troubles our soul. He knows that which we hide from all the world. And he loves and gives. We are amazed. None of this we deserve and none of this we could earn. It is just who you are by nature. We thank you for that. And we thank you that tonight we can be gathered under the teaching of the word of God to hear your word, to hear your truth. I pray that you would keep me from saying anything that is inaccurate, anything that is wrong. Guard my mouth. Give me clarity of thought. And I pray that the truth of your word would be communicated effectively through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Father, for the story of Jephthah, a real historical man, a man who had a nature like ours. But I thank you, Father, that he did one of the toughest things. He maintained a stand of integrity with his speech. So help us, Father, to learn the lessons tonight from your word that really would point us to, the, to Christ, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Thank you again, Father, for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So the setting, if you uh, could reflect back, or if you were not here this morning, kind of picture with me, that we, after Abimelech, the riotous, murderous years of Abimelech, when that upper millstone was tossed by that woman over the edge of the roof, and it landed on Abimelech's head, and it crushed him on the sidewalk, oh, glad that day was over. Then the Lord gave 45 years of peace and stability and a sense of prosperity. Although the people of Israel never really got back in fellowship with the Lord, at least there was a time of reprieve. But no sooner did those judges die off the scene than Israel again went back into their full-fledged idolatry. And seven pagan gods are mentioned that they had sought after and served and, and loved. And of course, we know what happened. The Lord, every time that happens, the Lord sends some oppression. He's going to teach his children to fall in line with obedience and humility before him, and he uses now the Ammonites to do this. So the nation Israel, typically, like they always do, they cry out. They're in pain, and after 18 years, they cry out and say, Lord, we have sinned. Rescue us. Deliver us. But for the first time in the book of Judges, God says, no. No, I will not. I've delivered you over and over and over. You've served seven pagan gods, and I've rescued you from seven pagan nations. But I'm not going to deliver you anymore. See, he, he's not, 
You cannot manipulate or trick God into some type of false sincerity to get your way. It doesn't work that way. You cannot play games with the God of heaven. He knows all and he knows the heart. Then you know what Israel did? Uh, Well, first of all, God reminds them in a rebuke, for you have forsaken me, the one true God who loves you with great grace and compassion, and then you have turned and served worthless gods. So then God says, go cry out to the gods you've, you've chosen. You've chosen the gods of the world. Cry to them for help and see if they'll deliver you out of all of your distresses, which God knows they can't because they don't, they're, they don't, they're not gods at all. So this is where we are. What did Israel finally do? Oh, they finally understood. It's more than just an intellectual thing. We're not just giving an intellectual exercise to God. He really means business with my heart. So they forsook the Baals and the gods of the pagans in chapter 10 of Judges. They forsook the gods, put them away, and said, Lord, whatever you will do to us, please, if if it's your will, save us, we pray. But whatever you say, whatever you do, we're good with that. Now that's great. That's genuine Submission to the Lord, saying, wait, we recognize we have sinned against you, and whatever your will is, you may never rescue us out of this, but whatever your will is, let it, let, we'll go with that. Okay? Notice what happened. God left them with the enemy. Now the enemy, the Ammonites, have, have encamped in Israel. They, they get right with the Lord. They forsake the gods of the world. And life does not get any better. As a matter of fact, it gets worse. The enemy is right encamped with them, And they are ready for a big battle. And listen, they have no judge. They look around. There's no judge in sight. Nobody has risen up. God has not picked somebody and said, I want you to be my judge. Rise up like he did with Gideon. He didn't pick out a Deborah and a Barak. He didn't pick out an Ehud. There was nobody to save Israel. So now Israel has done what they needed to do. Forsake the gods of the world and trust the one true God. But God has not helped. See what condition we're in? So sometimes we're in a life circumstance where it's messy and ugly, and, but we're faithful and we're trusting, and it's not getting any better. Endure. Endure, right? Be patient. Endure. Trust. Melissa and I have been there. Maybe not as difficult as others in the church have gone through circumstances, but we've, we've actually been sitting in the dark on a couch holding each other, saying, okay, we're going to make it through the next 24 hours. Sometimes, let's just make it through the night. I won't resign until tomorrow. I won't quit everything and go off and become a dishwasher at Denny's until tomorrow at 1. And then, luckily, we, we, you know, not luckily, but praise God for His grace that we were patient and, and endured. But it's not easy. That's what Israel, can you picture this is where Israel is? So let's go on. Now we're in chapter 10. Please follow with me. Judges chapter 10, verse 17. Then the people of Ammon gathered together and encamped in Gilead. That's the enemy. They're now in Gilead, the the nation of Israel. And the children of Israel assembled together and encamped in Mitzpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin the fight against the people of Ammon? He will be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Okay, they have no idea who the judge is. So what's their solution? Uh, let's pick one. Kind of makes sense to me. We don't have a, ne- a leader, so let's find one who's going to be willing to... Who is going to be willing to lead Israel against the Ammonites? The, the Ammonites were a powerful, powerful, a powerful nation. Look at chapter 11. Now we go. I'm going to give you a couple of Ds 
for Jephthah. So just to kind of remember the story of Jephthah, let's talk about some Ds. Number one, um, Jephthah, he is uh, disowned. He's a disowned man. So chapter 11, look with me. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty man of valor. So that was just his natural talent. Some people are natural fighters. I'm not. Man, I'll keep peace at all costs, which is a bad thing. But some people are just natural fighters. They like to get in and get a, get a good fight. Jephthah was like that. He's a Gileadite. He's a mighty man of valor. But he was the son of a harlot. All right, so he's got a problem. His mom is a prostitute. And his mom, he's not living with his mom. He's living with his dad. Uh, it says this. He was the son of a harlot, and Gilead begot Jephthah. Gilead's wife, so that's not Jephthah's mom. This is the real wife of Gilead. Gilead's wife bore sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall have no inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and dwelt in the land of Tov, and worthless men banded together with Jephthah and went out raiding with him. Can you picture the home scene? Jephthah, his mom is a prostitute. He doesn't probably even know who she is. He's probably never even probably met her. He's living with his dad. His dad dies probably. The older, everybody's grown up now. The dad is dead. And the brothers don't want Jephthah to have any financial security. So they say, get out. You don't belong to us. You're not our mom's child, so you get out of the house. So they kick him out. And I think we'll see in the context, the elders of the city kick him out. What does he do? He flees from his brother, his brothers. He dwells in the land of Tov. And then he gathers together with people he identifies with, worthless people, thugs, criminals. He becomes a gangster, and he is the leader of the mob. And he leads raiding parties into the city, stealing people's horses, stealing people's donkeys, probably grain. He's, he's just a bad, a bad guy. But he's had a hard life, Right? He's been disowned. So Jephthah's been disowned. Again, this is not a guy I would pick to lead Israel and get a victory. Why would you pick somebody with a criminal record who is a gangster and a natural brawler and fighter? Well, we'll find out that this is who God wants to use. I'm so glad God's not partial. Uh, Verse 4. And it came to pass after a time that the people of Ammon made war against Israel... Oh, so my second D, uh, Jephthah the Desperado. He's a, gang, he's a gangster. He's the leader, the head of a worthless band of men who go out raiding. Verse 4, it came to pass after time that the people of Ammon made war against Israel. So meanwhile, listen, Israel's forsaken their gods, but life has not gotten better. Now battles are going on. People are dying. Uh, graves are being dug in the sand and the dirt. And they, they're, looking, they're desperate. They need a leader. Verse 5, and it was... When the people of Ammon, or Ammon, made war against Israel, that the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tov. Then they said to Jephthah, Come and be our commander, that we may fight against the people of Ammon. Ah, smart people. Listen, you've got some not-so-noble elders of Gilead going to get a not-so-noble guy to get the victory, because they know who's a fighter in our, in our nation, who's a fighter in our tribe. Hey, the one that's got the best reputation to be a fighter is that Jephthah. Let's go find that worthless man and make him our general. Notice, back in chapter 10, they wanted to make whoever would, would be raised to fight the head overall. For Jephthah, they only offered him a generalship, just to be a commander over the army. But look at Jephthah. Jephthah is smart. Verse 7, So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, 
Hey, did you not hate me and expel me from my father's house? Why have you come to me now that when you are in distress? Doesn't it sound like Israel and God? God says, hey, why do you run to me now when you're in distress? You don't really mean it. So Jephthah says the same thing. Oh, by the way, often we treat our leaders like we treat God. They are treating Jephthah like they were treating God. Jephthah, we want you to come and take care of us and help us out of a bind, but we don't want much more out of you than that. And so Jephthah says, hey, I'm not going to play that game. Didn't you hate me and expel me? Why do you come to me now? So look at what happens. He's, he's, he's forcing the elders of Gilead to actually, with humility, make him the head overall. Verse, uh, verse 8. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, that is why we have turned again to you now that you may go with us and fight against the people of Ammon and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. At first it was commander. Now they're willing to say, Jephthah, you give us a victory. You get to be the head of our, of our tribe. We'll let you be judge or ruler over us. Verse 9, so Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you take me back home to fight against the people of Ammon and the Lord delivers them to me, shall I be your head? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be a witness between us if we do not do according to your words. Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord in Mitzpah. See how Jephthah's got faith? He knows he can't deliver the people, but he knows God will. So he is written in the book of Hebrews chapter 11 as a man of faith. He believed God could rescue Israel from the hands of Ammon, And he just might use this Jephthah to do it. Jephthah believes that. All right, so we've got Jephthah the disowned, Jephthah the desperado, and now he's ready to become the judge. But first, so if we were to stop right there, I would think, you know what's happened in every other situation in the book of Judges? The judge is raised up and leads a great military victory, and they all win and they go home. That's not what Jephthah does. He is a natural fighter, but my third D, Jephthah's a diplomat. Look at what he does. He does not fight. He uses words. Remember what I told you this morning? The key about Jephthah, the story, is communication. It's the spoken word. Israel speaks to God, confessing their sin. God rebukes Israel and then helps Israel. The elders talk to Jephthah. Jephthah talks to the elders. Now look what Jephthah does. He's a diplomat. Verse 12. Now Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the people of Ammon, saying, What do you have against me that you have come to fight against me in my land? Uh, diplomacy. Hey, why not try diplomacy before you try the battle, the war, right? Less people killed in a, in a diplomacy, in a diplomatic setting. So the messengers go to the king of Ammon. And then it says in verse 13, the king of the people of Ammon answered the messengers of Jephthah, because Israel took away my land. That's a lie, by the way. When Israel, because Israel took away my land when they came up out of Egypt from the Arnon as far as the Yabok into the Jordan. Now, therefore, restore those lands peaceably. The king is giving a false claim. He's saying, you guys stole our property. And so now I'm not going to read the next text. I'm just going to give you the basic story and you read it on your own. Jephthah, being a diplomat, hears from the king. The king said, Israel stole our land. We just want our land back. Give us our land back, and we'll be okay. The problem is, here are the three arguments. Number one, Jephthah says, check your history. All right, so the next text, verses 14, all the way down to verse 22. Basically, Jephthah says, check your history. Go back to the book of Exodus and find out, we did not steal your land, king. We won it in a war. And if we win it in a war, it's ours. 
All right? So that's the history. You know what happened? Moses is leading Israel up to the promised land. Moses contacts the king of Edom and says, hey, we'd like to go through Edom's property. You know, and we won't eat anything. We won't take a piece of fruit off of a tree. Just let us get through your country. We're going to the promised land. And what did the king of Edom say? No, you cannot go. You cannot touch our property. So they didn't. So then they're coming to the land of Moab, and Moses does the same thing. And the king of Moab says, don't cut through our property. It's like, don't come through our backyard. And so they don't. But they, they have no choice now. They have to get into um, Sihon. All right? they, have to, they have to get past King Sihon. So they do the same thing with the king of the Ammonites. And the king of the Ammonites says, no way, get out of here. And then the king, of, the king Sihon went against Israel in a real battle, and Moses won. It's theirs fair and square. So that's the history. Secondly, if you look at this, verse 23, hop down to verse 23, and now the Lord God of Israel has dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. Should you then possess it? Listen to verse 24. Will you not possess whatever Chemosh your God gives you to possess? That's a theological argument. There's a historical argument. King of the Ammonites we didn't steal your property. We won it in a war. And if we win it in a war, it's ours. That's how it works in this world. Secondly, you have false gods and you believe false gods give you, give you pieces of property and land. So we have one true God and he, he gave us this land. He said, you can have this land. So it's ours theologically. And then finally, look at the last argument. Verse 26. While Israel dwelt in Heshbon and its villages... In Ero in and its villages and in all the cities along the banks of the Arnon for 300 years, why did you not recover them within that time? How long has Israel been in the Ammonite former property? 300 years and they've never argued about it. Isn't that crazy? It'd, kind of, it'd be like if we just, well, we just possessed people here in America and then 300 years later, they finally come up and say, hey, you took our land. We'd be like, where were you the last 300 years? You could have made claim to this land any time. So there's a chronological argument. There's a historical argument. Do you see Jephthah? He's, he's, a great, he's a great communicator. He's a fantastic communicator. I've got a historical argument. I've got a theological argument and a chronological argument. What do you say now, king? You know what the king says, verse 28? However, the king of the people of Ammon did not heed the words which Jephthah sent him. All right, the king says, no deal. That happens. Hey, in ministry and in life, sometimes we communicate, we speak truth, we give facts from Scripture, we lay it all out, and the other party says, no deal. I don't care. Well, at that point, you've done everything you possibly can, provided you've given the truth, you've made everything right on your part, and if the other party doesn't agree or, or can't handle that, um, then you go your separate ways. It's, you're done. You, there's, you cannot achieve peace. And that's what's happened here. The king says, uh, no deal, Jephthah. I don't like your arguments, as true as they may be. So battle's going to happen. Now, I love this. Let's, talk, let's look at verse 29. Do you want my last D for the night? We've got, um, he's, Jephthah was disowned. He became a desperado. He then was a diplomat. I, can't, I couldn't find a D for a, a soldier. So I, I said, um, he's a daddy. He's a daddy. We, have to, we can't forget that Jephthah, the man, has one daughter. And he's a daddy to a little girl. To a young girl. How do I know she's young? She's not married yet. Uh, look at what happens. Verse 29. 
Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh. See, the Spirit of God is on the judge. He's on Jephthah, empowering Jephthah. Jephthah passes through Gilead. He passes through Manasseh, through Mitzpah of Gilead. From Mitzpah of Gilead, he advanced toward the people of Ammon, and Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. What? Wait a minute. Jephthah, he makes a vow to the Lord, and he said, if you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands. Wait a minute, everybody. Has God not said he will deliver him? Yes. Jephthah already knows he's going to win. The Spirit of God is upon him. But Jephthah doubts, and he says, Lord... If you will deliver us, I make a vow to you. By the way, a vow to the Lord is a promise you cannot break without great penalty. Without, you can't. You make a vow to the Lord, you've got to keep it. So Jephthah made a vow to the Lord, and he said, If you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the people of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Oh, Jephthah. Man, he went overboard, didn't he? He's on the way to battle. The Spirit of God is upon him, and he says, Lord, I make a promise to you. I vow to you. When I, if you let me win this battle and I come home, whatever is first to come out my door of my house, by the way, I can prove it to you, I believe that he's not thinking it's going to be an animal. He's not thinking it's a sheep. They're not going to have a sheep in the house. I don't, I, I've, heard, I've read all sorts of... I, honestly, I believe he's saying, whatever person, maybe a servant of mine, comes out of the house, I will burn him up for you. I will make him a burnt offering. I will kill him... Burn his body to nothing but a pile of ashes for you, God. Yes, this is one of God's judges who is going to do a murder and a burning up of a body, which Deuteronomy 12, God says, is a great about. We'll go there in a second. Okay, do you see the problem? Well, here we got the story. Let's finish up the story. So Jephthah advanced toward the people of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered them into his hands. Yes. There's a, there's a win for Israel. And he defeated them from Era as far as Mineth, tw- 20 cities into abel Karim, with a very great slaughter. Thus the people of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. When Jephthah came to his house at Mitzpah, there was his daughter coming out to meet him with tamrils and dancing, and she was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And it came to pass when he saw her that he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You are among those who trouble me, for I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot go back on it. And if it was an animal sacrifice that he was thinking, he could have gone back on that. Hey, I meant it was an animal, not a person. I think he actually believed whatever person came out of his door, he would kill and burn up. It just happened to be his only daughter. And now he says, I cannot go back on my word to the Lord. So she said to him, now if I was the daughter, I'd be like, you're nuts, dad, what are you doing? I mean, she doesn't. She doesn't have that response. She said to him, my father, if you have given your word to the Lord, do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, because the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the people of Ammon. Oh, wow. You want to talk about a woman of faith? I've never heard a woman of faith being preached about this girl. This girl 
is incredible. She says, Dad, God gave you the victory. It's all of God and not of you. You vowed foolishly to the Lord. And you have to fulfill it, which means you have to kill me and burn my body to ash. And it's okay, Dad. This is what you have to do. You cannot go against the Lord. Is that in, Who loves God's word and is willing to be obedient to that point? I, if I was the daughter, I would have been like, there's got to be some wiggle room. There's got to be a verse in the Old Testament that gets me out of this. She says, there's no way out. You said it. You have to do it. And I'm the victim. Wow. Do you guys appreciate this woman? I appreciate this woman so much. It kind of shows, sometimes you read the New Testament for the church and you think, man, I can get out of this a little bit. I don't have to, like, come on. Jesus said, remember me eating the bread and drinking the cup? He didn't mean super regularly. He just meant kind of regularly. You know, I don't really have to be with the church family when we do that type of thing. You know, when we, we can make all sorts of excuses about why we don't have to follow God's word as fully as we think maybe he might intend. But let's give him some, there's some wiggle room in the New Testament. He doesn't mean abstain from all fleshly lusts which war against my soul. Only some that I don't like to do anyways. I mean, offer me a cigarette, I don't have any desire for it. You know, offer me something else, maybe that's appealing, and I'll take that one, but that's really not a fleshly lust. Do you see how we can kind of play the same game? But she doesn't. She's like, Dad, you said it, you've got to do it. You don't have a choice. But she does have one request. Verse 37, she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Let me alone for two months that I may go and wander on the mountains and bewail my virginity, my friends and I. So he said, go. And he sent her away for two months and she went with her friends and bewailed her virginity on the mountains. Now, some people think that Jephthah just consigned her to be a virgin in the temple service. So she nearly didn't die. She just bemoaned her virginity, the fact that she couldn't get married and have children. But wait a minute. She would have her whole life to moan for that. She's, she wants two months because she knows at the end of two months, she's done. She is not going to get married and have children. You can't do that. And that doesn't work in two months. Right? I don't, if she was just, if, if Jephthah was just saying, I'm going to keep you alive, but you just can't get married and have children, that's my vow. Um, I mean, come on, she can mourn for that her whole life in service for the Lord. But that's not, I don't believe, I believe he fulfills the vow he said he was going to offer a burnt offering. That's my belief and and understanding. You may differ, but that's okay. This is my understanding of it. Verse 39, and it was so at the end of two months that she returned to her father and he carried out his vow with her, which he had vowed. She knew no man. He has, in other words, he has no... He has no genealogy. There's nobody after him. His line dies out. It became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went four days each year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite. Wow. Um, Well, our time, I'm not going to bring you into the Ephraimites. That's just... That would be too much. So let me just give you the applications I came up with. Just based on that, okay... I would love to finish the whole story, but we'll do that in part of Samson next week. Um, Here's my first application. You ready for this? Sometimes integrity is a deeply painful value in our modern culture. All right? 
To be a man or a woman of integrity is not an easy thing. Which is why there are so few that are that way. There's very, very few people that you could say are men or women of integrity. Because it is deeply painful and very difficult. Jephthah, regardless of his foolishness, regardless of his being the leader of a gangster mob, I'll tell you what, he is a man of integrity when it comes to his speech. He vowed foolishly and he had to follow through with it and he did the hard thing. By the way, I don't think God was pleased with his vow at all. Because in Deuteronomy 12, here's what it says in Deuteronomy 12, 29-31. When you displace the people and go in to take the promised land, you will dwell with them for a time, but do not behave like them, Deuteronomy 12, 29-31 says. Do not, when you dwell with them, do not pick up their habits because you will start acting like them and you will do abominable things like them, such as offering your son or daughter as a burnt offering. He says that. God says that. You, you are going to be tempted to go in the promised land and you will dwell with the wicked people and you will begin to pick up their characteristics and do not do that, especially killing somebody and burning their body up. Um, so obviously you know my second application. Be very careful with your words. Words are powerful. Words are powerful. If you say something, mean it. There used to be a day when you could have business done just by word of mouth and a handshake. You can't do that anymore. People's word isn't good anymore. But our word as believers has to be good. Do you agree? Be very careful what you say. Be careful. I'll tell you what, in 20 years of ministry, my greatest regrets is my mouth. It's, the, it's when I said thing, something that I could not take back. And I'd be like, if I could go back, I would not say that. (laughs) But you can't go back. My biggest regrets are those things right there. Be careful what you say. So that's my second one. Um, My third application, we are far more impacted by our culture than we think. Jephthah, he, he was a man of God. He knew God would deliver. God used him in a moment of faith, and Hebrews 11 says his name. He's in the hall of faith in the New Testament. But he took his understanding of God and still kept the pagan, the pagan ideas of the, of the world and put them together. And he thought, it's really no big deal. Everybody offers their son or daughter to burn offerings. Everybody does. It's true. In the Old Testament... They were tossing babies and children into the god Molech as fast as they were born. Can you believe it? You'd be like, we want a good grain harvest. Honey, get the 12-year-old. We're going to give him to Molech tomorrow, and I bet we're going to have good grain this year. What? What? Are you serious? Yeah, that's how meaningless life was. Uh, When we get to Judges 17 through 21... I might have said it this morning. I can't, maybe I don't, I'll just probably repeat myself. But 17 through 21 is the most violent, gross chapters you'll find in the Bible. Even now, as I've been studying them over and over and over, they are some of the most 
despicable things. Prostitutes, such immorality, cutting up bodies, delivering bodies to different parts of the country. Ah, uh, man. Um, yeah, it's, it just shows you they don't value life there. But then I'm thinking, wait a minute, in the New Testament, in the church age, are, do we really value life like that? Uh, look at abortion. Women are offering abortions, or having abortions, really offering them up to the gods of convenience, and we'll have more money if we don't have to raise a kid or a child. Um, we're sick. Our culture is sick. And you know what? We as Christians would say, well, we're totally against that. Yeah, we sure are, aren't we? But wait a minute. Um, If Jesus was at home sitting on the couch with us, would we really want to watch that particular movie with that particular maybe sex scene or whatever? And would we think, oh, yeah, Jesus is going to get a kick out of this because I, you know, or would we be like horrified that, oh, Lord, I don't want you seeing that kind of nudity. I know you're a holy God. You know, but we think in the New Testament, uh, come on, it's just a little bit. Every, Hollywood is everywhere. How do you get around it? Right? I mean, we, we have all, we do the same game Jephthah does, except Jephthah just happened to make a foolish vow and it affected his daughter. We're doing that all the time. I think, if anything, I think we should step back and evaluate everything in light of God's word. Is this holy? Is this acceptable? Is this enslaving? Is this beneficial? Is this going to help me in my progress of the Christian faith? Or is it going to put something in my heart and mind that shouldn't be there. More of that should be taking place. Um, what would early, I wrote this in, as a little quick note in my Bible, what would the early New Testament Christians think of our lifestyle? I mean, honestly. I have a lot of suits and ties in my closet. I have a lot of, I, I have a couple pairs of jeans and shoes and tennies. And, and I, mean, I mean, I've got lots of stuff. I mean, I guess our garage isn't super full, but it's got lots of stuff in it. And, and I'm like, if I were to bring the early church Christians into my house and into my life and say, hey, what do you think of this? They'd be like, uh, we're not used to this. If <laughs> You know what I'm saying? I'm just, I'm just saying. Just throwing this out to you guys. These are applications we can think about. Can I give you another one? God is not bound by human stereotypes of what's successful. It, you know, like I would, like we would never choose Jephthah. Like, why would God choose me? I'm, I'm afraid to speak to people. I, I, public speaking is my biggest enemy. I'm absolutely fearful. I've been invited to speak at the Bible College in a couple of weeks, so I'm going down to speak to the whole Bible College and the faculty or whoever's there, and I am scared to death. I'm not going to sleep the next two weeks. Um, I, the thought of speaking in front of a public group, uh, 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 even you guys, is absolutely terrifying. Um, I probably, like Melissa knows, I'd, probably, I'd rather have surgery every single Sunday. I Honestly, you know, take an arm off, and then the next week take another arm off, and I, I would be much happier in the hospital getting my arm removed than speaking publicly. I mean, it's just like God has a sense of humor. You know what? God can use you if you are willing. He can use you. He can use your personality, your likes. He can use your schooling. He can use your education. 
Uh, if you happen to have a criminal record, he might be able to... I mean, do you see what I'm saying? He, he, Paul's a murderer. Paul's a murderer, breathing threats against the Holy Church. Moses kills a man. David commits adultery. By the way, I'm not saying go and do those things. I'm just saying God can use us. His grace extends that far. Let me say it that way. His grace extends that far. Um, and it may be that whatever God has allowed or permitted in your life, he's permitted you to endure certain things in your life, trials, tragedies, life, the stinkiness of life, maybe the things that God has permitted in your life is going, is going to be the very thing that makes you a useful vessel to him. Right? Paul, if Paul didn't have those severe trials in Ephesus, he could never have written 2 Corinthians and say, I can comfort you with the comfort by which I've been given comfort because I was at the point of death. I saw no way out. I was in such despair, I thought I would die. I mean, death was his sentence, and Paul knew it. Uh, I think that there's just, maybe just one more quick thing. Just um, remember that no matter how desperate your past is, you are not a prisoner of your past. God's grace is greater than all your sin. All right, well, I have more, but we'll end there. Next week, we'll pick up Jephthah's last deal. Uh, you know what happens when pride, when pride collides with anger? Um, pride and jealousy and anger combined just makes blows everything up, and it ends up happening with that tribe of Ephraim again. There's a big blow up. Jephthah kind of loses control and puts a big blemish on his record. And then God says, "Okay, take a breather. I'll give you a couple of good judges for a while." And then we get Samson, the last judge on the scene. The last one, Samson. And we're going to spend probably next week, starting next Sunday night, uh, maybe a little bit in the morning, about Samson. It's, he's about the same length as Gideon, so we'll take a couple of messages on that guy. And then we'll wrap up the end of Judges, and we'll move on. But I'm, I hope you're g- gaining some truth out of this. God is good. Let's pray. Father, your grace is good. It is rich and abundant, and you give and give and give lav- lavishly to us. Thank you that we can respond with passion and delight with, with our Savior Jesus. Even with everything going on around us, if we keep our eyes on the cross and who Jesus is, uh, we feel protected. We are so thankful that, Father, you never make foolish vows. You protect and care for your children. You give us the Holy Spirit. You've given us your word. You've given us this church family. You are so good to us. Thank you, Father. And I pray that we would learn about our speech and about Jephthah. And uh, thank you that he was a man of integrity when it came to his spoken word. And so, Father, continue to use the book of Judges in our life. Grow us as a church. Help us to be better defenders of the gospel. Help us to be kind and gentle to others. And thank you again for your work in our lives. May Jesus be praised. Amen. So tonight,